Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your holiday time graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. (laughs) And your holiday co-host, Katie Gordon. I've got the holiday spirit, which really means that I'm excited to watch The Grinch. I was reading an article earlier that was sort of like wondering why is The Grinch like the classic, such a classic Christmas character. And for me at least, I think he's very relatable. Not very social, sort of grouchy, <laughs> uh, sleeps a lot. So I, I certainly related to the the character and uh, the article in that way. And I'm excited to uh, reconnect with one of my favorite fictional characters. Maybe a blog post about the Grinch would be fun. I would be interested yeah. to hear about what you think really turned him around. Yeah, that would that would be fun. I actually think I'm going to go ahead with this idea that I, I did not think about ahead of this. But uh, it would be fun for sure. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. I... I think that my favorite holiday movie is Scrooged. Oh, nice. Which is from, I think, the 80s it came out. Okay. So it's kind of an old movie, but Bill, it's the, it's a Christmas carol, but the take of it is more modern and it's very funny and uh, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but I have it somewhere and I try to watch it every year around okay. the holidays and Bill Murray is the main character and he's very funny. He plays Frank Cross, who is not a nice person at all. Um, but he's like putting on a show of a Christmas carol at a TV network that he works at. But like, meanwhile, he's being visited by the ghost. So it's got some cool meta sure. funny stuff in there. I don't think I've ever seen it. I it's, I, it. I think you'd like it. It's, yeah. it's got, I think it's got a kind of humor that you'd enjoy. I'll have to check it out. And to clarify, I'm not sure if the Grinch Jim Carrey movie is my favorite. Oh movie for the holiday season but the character of the grinch just generally oh well, i see very relatable character for me i wanted to clarify that very important point before we continued <laughs> it's funny because i have the animated version in my head sure. too, even though i've seen the jim carrey mm-hmm. one i think i've seen the animated one more frequently I think so that's, that's kind of the one too. that's in my in my brain when i think of the grinch yeah um another sort of sort of on holiday movie talk here uh what do you think about the people who always say that Die Hard is their favorite Christmas movie? It's kind of getting to be a little cliche, I think. And so is like saying things are cliche. I think that's also cliche. But... <laughs> I haven't seen Die Hard, and if I have, it hasn't been any time recently. So I don't have a strong opinion on this controversy. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I didn't know that there was people who didn't see Die Hard. And I'm not usually someone to sort of shame people for not seeing movies because that happens to me all the time because I just haven't seen a lot of movies. I feel like I've seen a lot of movies, but this happens to me a lot where people are like, you haven't seen that? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm turning the tables and doing that to you. I've shocked nice, you. Yeah. Well, maybe you should watch Scrooge and I'll yeah. watch Die Hard and then we'll be all cut up and ready to weigh in. Well, the thing <laughs> I forget about Die Hard is it, it happens during Christmas. Does uh-huh. that make something a Christmas movie? I I don't know. It depends uh-huh. how you define the construct Christmas movie, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. 
That's for for the real thinkers. <laughs> we'll focus on the mental health. I will say that um, SPSM, we've been on their show. We've talked about them so before, uh, which is Suicide Prevention Social Media. They typically, other than summer and kind of holiday breaks, every Sunday around 9 p.m. Central Time have a YouTube recurring show and i'll link to it it's very good it's experts in suicide some of them um one of them works in the national suicide prevention lifeline they have different relevant areas of expertise and they did an excellent show on sunday talking about myths surrounding suicide around the holidays because often around in december around christmas there are usually some pieces or at least represented in fiction, which we've talked about on the show before, the idea that suicide rates are higher during Christmas, mm-hmm. which is actually untrue. The suicide rates um, are higher kind of starting in the spring, right? And so they they debunk that myth. Again, not, there are people who struggle during the holidays, oh, and those absolutely. people should reach out for support and care, and you should check on at-risk loved ones. But they did a nice job talking about some of the myths surrounding that, and then they also evaluate the how realistic the classic movie it's a wonderful life is because it involves the main character contemplating suicide and they look at some pieces of like joiner's siri looking at feeling like a burden and they did a nice job so i'm going to link to it and highly recommend if you haven't checked them out before this is a great episode to kind of jump in and see what they're all about yeah absolutely so the the talks happen they live stream them along with a twitter uh conversation that goes with it so it's really cool and if you do miss it like we all do things happen sometimes i i get busy on sunday nights uh they're all on youtube and they actually even also do like a highlight reel if you only have just a couple minutes to see if you want to get the highlights of the talk so yeah they're awesome and i can't uh, recommend checking them out enough yeah, so that's, if you're in the holiday spirit and want to combine it with mental health, that's a good one to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, other related sort of current event stuff. This week, uh, the Geek Therapy Podcast Network is doing kind of a, I don't know what's the right word for it, a drive? It's not a donor drive, no. really. That's what they call it over at NPR. I like NPR. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, whatever we're calling it, uh, which I probably should have looked up before, sort of started talking freestyling this kind of michael scott style um <laughs> go uh to the geek therapy podcast network there's a whole bunch of great shows on the network you've got geek therapy uh jedi council if you've heard of that one rolling for change headshots psych tech uh geek family therapy and then a couple of more conglomerate ones like geek therapy roundtable and one other one where the name is escaping me um if you're interested in supporting any of the shows there's a patreon page for the geek therapy podcast network broadly where you can support all the shows and activities and then we over at jedi council have our own sort of patreon page that you can support as well uh where we're going to be rolling out our new rick and morty uh psychology of rick and morty podcast uh we're looking to uh drop the first episode of that three weeks i think uh, just after the holidays, I think we're going to We've drop. got a few technical things to work yep. out, and but we're looking for a 2018 yep. January launch. Yep, 2018, it's coming up all Rick and Marty, folks. And made possible to, by our wonderful patrons, so thank yeah, you very much. absolutely. So if you want to continue supporting just kind of the work that the, the network is doing or that we're doing, uh, you can check out our Patreon page, and we'll link to it below. Uh, and in that kind of in line with that, what we have been trying to do is thank our, our patrons as well, because it means so much to us that they care enough about the content that we're creating to support us. And we have a new patron this week, 
uh, who is a someone who I've come to become friends with, which has been really a, a pleasant part of starting the Jedi Council podcast. Uh, his name is Chase, uh, a new patron for us, and I just kind of a way of saying thanks to Chase for doing that. Uh, we've kind of been doing shout outs for everyone, and I wanted to kind of plug his podcast, if you don't mind, Katie, if I take a minute. Uh, Chase is a co-host of a podcast called Learned From Gaming, and I'm going to just quickly read kind of their blurb about their podcast and uh, also give it the Jedi Council seal of approval. Uh, please do check it out. So this is Learned At Gaming. Uh, we at Learned From Gaming believe that gaming can have valuable impact on a person's life and that video games have helped shape the types of people we are today. Our hope is that by expressing our opinions to you, we can be constructive to gaming culture as a whole and promote optimism and enthusiasm within a pastime that is too often considered just a hobby. Each podcast segment will be dedicated to a collection of games of the host choosing, where we discuss what might be learned from the game, why this is significant, but also what makes the game fun. Additionally, we wish to help create an oral history of video games, often talking about and exploring aspects of gaming that some of our viewers may be too young to have ever witnessed. In all, the Learn From Gaming podcast is a labor of love created for fun with the intention of exploring the intrinsic educational value new. We hope you enjoy listening. So if that sounds like something that's your uh, kind of up your alley, it certainly is a, an area of interest for me. Please go check out Learn From Gaming and uh, tell Chase hi from the Jenny Council. Yeah. What else do we have, Katie? Is that kind of it, I think? Oh, well, that's just sort of a rude kind of thing. That's okay. <laughs> just kidding. That's why I want to make sure to get that in. That, that reminds so me... when you're editing, you're like, yeah. wait a second, that was not reciprocated. That reminds me of, uh, well, forgive me for a tangent, of our Dungeons & Dragons campaign that I ran. Uh, you might remember when I was the DM, we played Curse of Strahd. And uh, I don't know if you remember this running joke where you, you, the colloquial you, like the group of characters, not just you specifically, would sort of jump into dialogue with NPCs that you had never met. Uh, and I would always joke that it, like, it must be just sort of a, a cultural thing that you just don't ask for people's names and how they're doing, <laughs> and you'll just demand information from them. That, that reminds That's me right. That. Lunch right into the information critical to the next mission. That was just me taking role-playing a little too soon. I do enjoy Dungeons. For the topic of today. So... Uh, this is part two. Uh, I'm presuming that if you're here, you've listened to part one of our um, crazy ex-girlfriend slash borderline personality disorder slash dialectical behavior therapy episode. Uh, and this week, we're going to focus more on the dialectical behavior therapy developed or used in disorders. So last week, we talked about the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And once again, I just kind of want to... Uh, but as mental health professionals, we we tend not to use the word crazy show, and it feels clunky to just not say. It. I mean, actually, impossible. I don't know how I would refer to the show without using the word. Um, but last week we talked in the main character Rebecca and talked about uh, some borderline personality disorder disorder. And Katie, you were kind enough to kind of uh, I could rely on you a little bit for the examples from the show. I was kind enough to watch a yeah. lot of the episodes. I just watch lots of TV. Which I'm almost caught up now. I've almost okay. seen all of the first two seasons. It, I'm yeah. telling you, it hooks you in. <laughs> it really does. Uh, I, I have more to say about the show, I guess, now. Well, unsurprisingly, now that I've seen it. It's sort of just a kind of a logical... <laughs> they do tend to be correlated. Yeah. Um, so if you'll, if you'll indulge me just a couple sure. minutes to recap about the show. Uh, when I started the show, and I think I was probably messaging you about it, mm. I didn't really know about it. And what I mean by that is I didn't know if I liked it. Um, because it's certainly unique for a TV show, I didn't know at all that it, every episode would contain one to two to three musical numbers. <laughs> that caught me off guard. Um, and at first I wasn't sure if I liked it because I wasn't sure if it was being 
very compassionate in its depiction of a woman who is seemingly struggling with mental health problems. Um, but my opinion has mostly turned around now because the characters evolved a lot. And certainly it seems like that trend continues into season three. So I do enjoy the show quite a bit now. Um, and I am interested in to continuing watching it. You know, and I, I was talking to my sister about this show. And as you know, I watched the most recent episode because that's when yeah. she got her diagnosis and prompted some press and attention for the way that was handled. But um, my sister said watching into the episodes of season three that actually her behavior becomes more clearly maladaptive. She does things that cross the line uh, to make it more clear that it's it might reach the threshold of a personality disorder where it's really distressing and pairing um doing more extreme things of alienating her friends and stuff like that and basically yeah. experiencing more problems which makes sense leading up to the episode where she attempts suicide yeah and, and stuff so i'm interested to catch up on that too um like I said, I usually wait till the whole season's on Netflix, but now I'm not sure if I can wait it sure. because I I want to see how how they led up to that excellent most recent episode that they had. Yeah. I'm sort of unrelated to mental health. Can I ask if you have a favorite character? I was thinking about this because I like a lot of the characters quite a bit for various reasons. That's a good question. Why don't you answer it while I think about my sure. answer? <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer, and I was actually planning on doing the exact oh. same thing to you, so nice work. I learned that technique from yeah. you, actually. I probably shouldn't have ever revealed one. my strategy. Um, I, I, I like Paula quite a bit. Yeah. I think she's a pretty... Even though it was interesting to see some of the insecurity that she had about losing Rebecca as a friend and how she sort of... I don't know if manipulated is the right word, but in some ways manipulated some of the stuff with Josh to keep that alive because she thought that was kind of the lifeblood of their friendship. And yeah. that, that made me sad in addition to, like, I thought it was sort of touching that that's how much the friendship meant to her. And I also I think she's a very funny sort of character. Um, but I I don't know. Some of, like, the just the silly stuff she does as a friend that kind of I enjoyed. But I also really like their boss, uh, Daryl, I think yeah. his name is. He's just cracks me up so much for some reason. I don't know why. His uh, character development has been pretty interesting to sort of watch him um, kind of understand his own uh, sexual orientation mm-hmm. a little bit. It was kind of cool. Um, it was interesting to watch. But even more than that, I like just as a character, I thought he was super funny. And uh, like when they're having like the girls party at Rebecca's house in season two and he's like, following the instagram and sees that he wasn't invited again and shows up with maya and they do like this dance i don't know it's just so yeah, silly the is. show is silly in general but it I is really they like have some character. serious things like we've did yes. but there are, there are a lot of things that make you laugh yeah for too. sure so yeah it's it's i find paula really interesting too i think it's tough i liked greg as a character too yeah. i thought that was and valencia too i thought yeah. she actually because it's like when she starts out it's kind of framed as like you don't like her because you kind of feel like Rebecca's jealousy towards her or something like that. But over time, she ends up being a pretty interesting person. And, I mean, she was always interesting, but they reveal more about her. And I think that's kind of cool how they do that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting cast. And there are definitely other characters who have mental health struggles that would be of interest to focus on, too. I I think I'm actually going to change my answer at the last second. Okay. And say that my final favorite character is actually Heather, uh, Rebecca's neighbor and and future friend. (laughs) Especially in the beginning when she was taking an abnormal psychology class and was just like... She reminds me a lot of April from Parks and Rec, and that style of character really... 
cracks me up a lot, like super sort of cynical and flat. And monotone, yeah. Monotone. <laughs> I, I really like that soft character. And also I thought it was kind of fun seeing her like go to her class and like, I, I, they made some joke about like something not being recognized yet by the DSM-5 and yeah. two. I can't remember exactly what the joke was, but. But I like her as a character. Yeah, she's good. Fun show to watch, and the fact that they can take that and then have serious and accurate information about borderline personality disorder and the diagnostic process is really impressive. So I'm excited to see where it goes from here. And from I mentioned this briefly last time, but the the suggestion, even that the therapist is kind of like suggest group therapy that could mean mm. anything but i mean right. that's consistent with dialectical behavior therapy which we're going to talk about today and has yeah. a significant group component yeah so. so well that's actually probably a pretty good segue then and thanks for indulging me just to talk a little bit no, about the show now that i've seen it i mean a big part of this podcast is geeking out about stuff we like so it's important to add that in Speaking of which, mm-hmm. Star Wars isn't only two short days away, I, which is so besides the point that I'm very no, excited. No, I, I, I just am so excited, and we're going to try to record a reaction episode to that, which will be heavily labeled for spoilers so that we yeah. don't have the internet mad at us. That would be bad. I don't just want the internet to be mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about dialectical behavior therapy. Okay. Um, henceforth, probably just referred to as DBT, just for kind of ease of conversation Mm -hmm. uh and it's the kind of accepted shorthand uh initialismist not an acronym yep we've we've visited this for the show but it's been a while maybe we should do a quick oh sure uh so because it's i don't and it is important to be accurate in the words that we're using um an initialism is something like dbt for dialectical behavior therapy or cia for central intelligence agency an acronym is something where uh, you actually say the letters as a word, even though it's an abbreviation. So something like CERN, which is the where the particle accelerator is located, and I don't know what the acronym is short for, <laughs> which probably <laughs> wasn't it a, just, a great or example. Or ACT, right? Acceptance yeah, and Commitment right. Therapy. Yeah, thank you for coming up with an, an example that you actually knew, not like me, just sort of... No, I like that because it's nice to sometimes do a little something outside of psychology. Yeah, it's important to show that we know other things. The European Organization for Nuclear Research, known as CERN. That, Don't know where that C comes from. That's really weird, and I'm actually wondering if that's not an acronym now, because I thought it was just short for for, for four words that started with C-E-R-N. Well, listeners, tweet us if you have thoughts on this. <laughs> I need to think of one more acronym, so we have two examples. <laughs> so that we can um, really... Hmm. This shouldn't be that hard. CBASP. Yes. That's a that's another <laughs> psychology one, but it is short for cognitive behavioral systems of analysis. Oh, analysis. Thank you. Psychology. Psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. Jeez. <laughs> but see, that's, so that's it. Shows you though that's you just need to know the like acronym. It's true, and that's how I've always referred mm-hmm. to it ever since I learned about it in my ancients class one. There you go. So. That's been a little lesson, the difference between initialism and um, not anachronisms, acronyms, and another thing, I've which we're not sure which category this so off the rails now. Into. This is so bad. We've got, we're going to get bad reviews for this. That's my fault. No, it's my fault. For picking two acronyms that I didn't know the words for. Ugh. Okay, dialectical behavior therapy. Which DBT. we have prepared for. You can tell the we, difference. We are. This is when this we're is going true. when we're going off that line, and yeah. when we're just 
We write extensive outlines, and then I get us distracted. So a dialectical behavior therapy uh, is a treatment, DBT is a treatment uh, developed by an individual named Marsha Linehan. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say just of my own sort of personal ranking system, Marsha Linehan is one of the most incredible psychologists and individuals of all time, just sort of in my own personal She is a hero in psychology. She accomplished something that... A number of people were struggling with being able to do, which is yes. to provide a treatment that helps people with chronic serious suicidal behavior. Yep. And as you mentioned, is used for borderline personality disorder and overcame a lot in that way. I've been lucky enough to see her speak twice at conferences and was lucky enough to um, meet her afterwards. And it was just she has such an engaging way mm-hmm. of talking. And if you're if listeners are interested in in seeing her speak, which I highly recommend, I'm going to link to a page that we've talked about here before, which is the APA, American Psychological Association, Division 12, which is for clinical psychology mm-hmm. page, where they talk about research-supported treatments. Whoever did that page did an outstanding job in embedding videos, linking to studies, and really kind of going into detail about what the research tells us, what the future directions are needed to be, and um, kind of the status of the strength of research support. It even has a little link where you can click to find a therapist who specializes in dialectical behavior therapy. Well, there are the editors, David Albert, PhD, and Stephanie Goldstein, BS, Bachelor of Science. So thank you both for creating such an excellent resource. Absolutely. And uh, actually, this is kind of besides the point, too, but we've talked about the Division 12 page quite a bit, and uh, they actually have a new social media coordinator. Oh. Uh, So the Division 12 Facebook page has gotten much more active lately in, like, the last week, and it's already been, like, really cool. Some of the stuff they published on there about, like, evidence-based assessments and just trying to get more engagement uh, in that way and try to f- disseminate some of that information. So, That's great. And yeah. a lot of it is directed to mental health yes. professionals, but interested consumers who, um, for the public, I, it does link you to the information if you want yeah. to read it, which I really appreciate. I mean, this is really a major service of Division 12 is to make scientific information about the treatment of mental health more accessible, which is really the premise of this podcast, too. So it's been a useful model for us. You heard it here first. The Jedi Council is the official podcast of the Division 12. Uh, No, no, we're not. All views are our own. Division 12. Just kidding, for sure. Please. They're just going to clip that little part. That's true. I shouldn't have ever said it. I don't regret it. Okay. I'm going to talk a little <laughs> bit quickly about the story of Marshall Linehan. So we'll link to this article as well uh, in the podcast uh, description or outline. But this is an article from the New York Times uh, where uh, a handful of years now or a few years ago now, uh, this story was put out and Marshall Linehan came out more publicly with some of the struggles with mental health that she had. Uh, prior to becoming a psychologist, and even while becoming a psychologist mm-hmm. as well. Um, and this was a really a pretty huge deal uh, to have someone uh, so well-known in psychology come out and to have struggled so severely with her own mental health uh, struggles or obstacles as well. So uh, I'm just going to quickly do a highlight reel of the story because I don't want to just read the whole article. So I would encourage you, if anything in the story sort of catches your attention as I'm talking about, take a minute to read the article because it's not that long and it's a captivating, uh, incredible story. So 
Um, it kind of starts off talking about, uh, you know, Marshall Linehan. She's worked with a lot of suicidal clients, and and she talks about, even in, later in the article, she really wanted to work with suicidal clients because she felt like these were the people who might be struggling or the most miserable. That was kind of her own conceptualization. And she, uh, having been in that situation herself, really wanted to work with them and see if she could help them. Um, when other people might not be able to. so And in, uh, in fact, often, if you don't mind me jumping in. Please jump in whenever. Uh, often in, in clinical trials, when you're looking at who gets included and who's excluded, and clinical trials when you're testing to see what type of therapy is most effective, sometimes the exclusion criteria is that the person is at risk for suicide yeah. because they um, they kind of focus on this particular group and so she really wanted to say let's look at those people who are excluded Mm -hmm. at least historically from some of these trials absolutely um so when working with those individuals she said and this is probably maybe something you can relate to katie i'm sure and something i've had some experience with she would have clients ask personal questions about her life because apparently uh you know like in the article talks about on her arms there was some scars and burn marks and things like that so they would ask uh, you know, Marsha, have have you been in something like what I'm dealing with? And uh, she would, you know, kind of wonder too. Uh, I mean, what what will that do for you? Are you trying to know? Have I ever suffered too? And uh, what kind of the idea that she got back from these clients or patients was that it would give them hope, is what she said, to know that someone like her would have struggled in the same way. And to hear or read about an article, this was a really big impetus for her to say, you know. If that's what this will do, if coming out and being more public with my struggles will do, uh, will give people hope, then then she wanted to do that. And so that's what she did. So really it started, uh, her own struggle started when she was very young, uh, a lot of behavioral difficulties as a very young child uh, that continued into adolescence and, and being even a young adult. And then as it turned out, um, you know, struggling growing up, she felt inferior to her siblings and and had a lot of stuff like that. And at age 17, this was 1961, uh, she was placed uh, in a a place called the Institute of Living, which is actually where she gave this talk uh, about her struggles. And she was placed in this seclusion room um, because she had been burning herself or hurting herself with anything that she had available. Uh, And a little, I guess we should say this, we'll put this in the message, a little content warning that um, if you're concerned about hearing about non-suicidal self-injury, we're going to be talking a little bit about that and some yes. suicidal behavior, too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Katie. No problem. Um, we'll put so, it in our show notes. Yeah. So they put her in this room where there would be nothing for her to hurt herself. And even in that room, what she started doing was hitting her own head on the wall and on the ground as well. And um, so prior to that, and during that time, she had been... excuse me, diagnosed with schizophrenia. She had been fairly heavily medicated, and she actually underwent electroconvulsive therapy, two separate uh, treatment plans that consisted of like something like 17 and 15 uh, sessions for each. So pretty intensive treatment um, for what was most likely uh, and probably a misdiagnosis, almost certainly, afterwards. So, uh, And even the diagnostic system, as we've talked about before, oh, yeah. was not as uh, reliable as it is currently. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. As well understood. Mm-hmm. So during that time, she really truly felt like she was in hell. And she kind of made this vow to herself that when she got out of this place, uh, both this physical place and this kind of mental place uh, in which she was existing, she would help other people get out of that. And I think that's kind of to read about it at least 
it was the start of a lot of this uh, journey for her. So when she left uh, she the the Institute for Living, she continued to struggle. Uh, she was hospitalized again uh, after a suicide attempt later on, and she got uh, pretty involved with her faith. She identified as a Catholic, so she got very involved in Catholicism. And at one point she was at church, and, and she was praying, and she describes this kind of this experience where uh, things turned kind of golden and and just at that moment uh, she had this almost like an epiphany that she really she loved herself at that time uh, and, and at that point you know going forward uh, she felt like she struggled still with some of the emotional ups and downs but she felt like she could manage those without harming herself which was new for her compared to some of the experiences that she had previously. And that video is worth watching where she describes that because it's so interesting. I'm to not see doing her it describe. justice in any No, way. no, yeah. you're doing a great yeah. job. I'm just saying in addition to oh, that it's really absolutely. cool to see her describe I, that. For anyone listening I would really encourage to watch and read the article. This this really is like a highlights reel. I wanted mm-hmm. just to get the story out there but um, so after that she went on to study psychology. She earned a PhD uh, in 1971 and uh, it was kind of during this time that she sort of realized uh, kind of this idea of radical acceptance she calls it uh, that she could accept herself exactly as she was and this kind of led into in some ways the foundation for DBT which has kind of these opposing ideas of uh, radically accepting yourself exactly as you are but despite that radical acceptance really uh, recognizing the need to change uh, as a result or reality of that um, so uh, she w- went on and, and decided you know she wanted to work with who she called the super suicidal uh, because she felt like they were really the most miserable individuals uh, and specifically she wanted to focus on borderline personality disorder uh, and we're going to talk in depth about some of the treatment as we get on, so I won't go into depth now, but she found that as part of the treatment with some of that tension that went in between the acceptance and the need to change, she found that tension really worked in a way to keep people in the room and at least get people engaged. Um, she found that as she continued to, uh, she rose a lot you know, academically, of course, now she's so well known and DBT is a, a, a frontline treatment, the treatment for borderline personality. Uh, she's, she continued to struggle um, and she kind of, at the end of the day, thought that DBT, she said, it, it made the splash because it was able to uh, treat something that really before was thought of as not being really treatable. So that's a really quick rundown of kind of her story and, and the struggles that she had as she moved through and, and, and her experiences and how they led to the development of DBT. A, yeah. a highlights reel for sure. But. Yeah, thank you so much for that overview. I mean, I think it, it speaks to her remarkable personal resilience And also, I really admire her scientific rigor because in the times that I've seen her speak and in some of her work, a couple other themes that have come up are that people will challenge things and say, don't you think it's not because of the behavior part? Don't you Mm -hmm. think it's the relationship part of, of your therapy that's doing all the work? And she'll say, that's really interesting. What measures would you use to yeah. test that? And then she goes out and tests it. The, in a very short summary, it suggests that the behavioral techniques are important. Um, the relationship is crucial too, but beyond that, some of the skills, especially um, that are obtained through it, seem to be important. But that that openness and collaboration, that scientific rigor. I mean, even the way you know her personal experience, which she viewed as transformative, of um, feeling self love. And acceptance, she went to study that um, with really from different kind of religious uh, perspectives, looking at 
meditation and, and looking at um, looking within Christianity and within Buddhism. And then that was to help what we would call right the context of discovery and under, you know, kind of building that, but then tested it, which we would call the context of ju justification scientifically. So that's a very brief overview, but that's yeah. another thing that I really admired about the rigor in her work. And running clinical trials are very difficult. It's difficult when you're recruiting specifically for people who have pretty chronic mental health problems, including chronic suicidality. She's also done stuff with people who have um, severe substance use problems and, and other types of things like that. And it takes a real commitment and passion to do that. And I, I just admire her for all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is. I, I love that about her too. Mm -hmm. When she gets the challenges and and like exactly you said, what measures would you use? And and she just does it because she's not tied to the theory always being proven right or always being supported. In that she gets defensive about those challenges. She openly accepts them and wants to understand: is the the kind of the theory and the treatment right? Uh, and if it's not, what can be improved or fixed? But it, it, the research research has certainly supported it. It does. It does seem to do that. And seeing her talk about it, it it's interesting. And I think that, you know, there are so many components to the therapy. And she, you know, was trained doing cognitive behavioral therapy and thought that was the answer. But at least from when I saw her speak, if I'm remembering correctly, she was saying one of the things was, is that without the highlighting and putting up front the dialectic of having the kind of acceptance and the change thing that it was hard to get people on board because she would say something like um well you're miserable let's do these things to change and they'd say oh so you think something's really wrong with me and then she would say you know well the problem is you need to you need to accept yourself more and they'd say oh so you don't think that i can change these things and so she found that by highlighting and putting them kind of um in the in the front or as a main part of the therapy that that seemed helpful now in terms of therapy as not to get too into the details about this but just in case mental health professionals are listening i don't want to overstate my claims which is a lot of the the research is looking at outcomes of the effect of therapy something that we we need more of in therapy, including in dialectical behavior therapy, or so-called dismantling studies, where you look at the different components to see what works. To my knowledge, within DBT, they have shown, for example, um, the group component versus the individual component, but there, there is a lot of stuff to unpack that comes with this type of therapy. I was very lucky to be trained on it in detail when I was on internship by someone who worked directly with Linehan. Um, Eunice Chen, who was a great mentor and, and was working on applying this within, um, trying to see if it applied within eating disorders at the time. And so um, what, we, what we can confidently say that is um, among treatments for, that have been studied for borderline personality disorder, this one is rated as having the strongest research, but there's still more to understand about this and to do about this. And, and there have been efforts to kind of pull apart, like, what are the essential components? Is there a way that we can make this work? And so it'll be interesting to see the directions that that goes. And I think Linehan does a nice job of laying out those future directions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Want me to say more sure. about DBT? That's <laughs> <Sure. laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Um, so I guess the main thing is to just talk about the basic structure sure. of DBT. And we'll link to this if you're interested in knowing more details. But I find, I don't know, is, you, is it your experience that people outside of the field 
have heard of DBT? No, I don't think so. It seems really popular with mental health professionals mm-hmm. in counseling, like social work, in different, among different mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. But in terms of outside of that, which is kind of unusual. I think so. Um, if I compared DBT to CBT, I would say they aren't comparable. I would say a lot of people have heard of CBT. And even, you know, when I'm talking to students or, or clients for the first time, I say, well, are you familiar with CBT? Is that something you heard of? A lot of them say yes. They don't know a lot more beyond that, but they've certainly heard mm-hmm. cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. But I don't find that to be as true for DBT, and I don't know why. I'm not sure why either. It does involve a lot of specific components, and so for someone to be fully, say, trained on DBT, the way, you know, I don't I don't know if it feels like that takes more than CBT. But then again, there are people who will have that, like, advertised on their websites. Mm-hmm. It's like that's something that they do. But a lot of the times, something we see is like a variation on the structure that's been tested in the clinical yeah. trials and things like that. So, um, so anyway, I it's I will I'll say this: the it's it's more complicated than what we're presenting. But our goal is to put out the information so that you know that there is this treatment that has been studied specifically for borderline mm-hmm. personality disorder. Among the treatments for borderline personality disorder, this tends to have the most support. But there are still unanswered questions mm-hmm. involved here for sure. But hopefully this will be an introduction. Yeah, just a nice primer. Exactly. Uh, not a comprehensive training or uh, a comprehensive literature review. Exactly. So with 900 disclaimers, <laughs> I will give you is an it, idea. Is that a psychologist <laughs> thing or just an us thing? Well, it's like all the... No, I think it's both. I mean, it's sure. definitely part of the training to be humble about yeah. and not overstate things. And one of the things that has... There is some evidence that some of the components, not specific to DBT, but there are... Let's just say sometimes things are overstated with regard yeah. to, for example, mindfulness, which we've talked about. I personally find good practice, but there are sometimes exaggerated claims made, and I don't want to be an exaggerated claim maker. No, that doesn't <laughs> help anyone. No. So um, so anyway, with all of those aside, and um, I, I, the, I'll give a basic overview of dialectical behavior therapy. So there are some unique components compared to like say CBT, other stuff like that. And so the basic overview is that it involves individual therapy that the client usually gets typically weekly. Again, this varies by setting, but in the kind of classical sense. And in that session, often the focus is looking at the kind of crises and situations going on in that person's life and it's very tailored to their particular behaviors when um the second major component i would argue is the group session and that goes through four skills modules and that's done in a setting where people engage and do their homework but it's very much focused as a group it resembles a little bit more of a classroom feel it's certainly more personal than a classroom it's definitely therapeutic but it's more about teaching skills And then when you go into individual therapy, you can reinforce the use of those skills depending on the situations that are coming up. So I'll kind of, there are a lot of other things used within there like diary cards and chain analyses, but I'll kind of just leave it at the basic individual and group therapy. Another part of DBT that that I think is worth mentioning is that people who work in DBT, um, because these clients often are struggling with serious problems. There was some concern that therapists 
might not be as, um, I guess, willing to work with people with borderline personality disorder or might get burned out from doing this kind of work, especially if they've lost clients to suicide or mm -hmm. clients have attempted suicide. So one of the nice things that's built into this is the DBT consultation team, and that means you meet with other therapists who are doing DBT, and this provides a number of functions. One of them is that it's kind of support. It's um, sometimes referred to as therapy for the therapist and it's not really therapy but what it is is talking to other people struggling with the same thing so you can keep them in perspective and that's specifically to prevent burnout but also to make you a better therapist so if you're stuck on some challenging situation you can have your peers suggest well maybe it's this or maybe it's that and they can kind of help you to adhere to the framework and also just problem solve together so i personally have enjoyed dbt consultation team when i was doing dbt in the past on internship for example there's another part of it that i also think is important which is in the moment coaching and that what that does is you um basically they structure different ways but the idea is the client can always call someone and sometimes it's like a rotating pager or something like that but there's someone on call a dbt therapist who can coach them on using their skills in the moment the goal of this is to help generalize the skills from the sessions the individual and group sessions into the real world environment so the the rule of it is basically the the client has to have tried some of the skills on their own and if they're really stuck they call for support some therapists get concerned about getting a lot of calls, but actually in my experience and other people I've talked about, the usual case is trying to get people to call. So, you know, when you meet with them, they say they tried a couple skills from DBT that didn't work and they were stuck and kind of like, you know, that's a great time to call so that you can coach in the moment and that helps generalize the skills into the real world environment. So those are some of the main aspects of that. And really the function of it is to help enhance the client and therapist capabilities and motivations. And I'll link to more details on that. I think it's worth going briefly talking about the four modules that are in, in skills training because I think that is a big part of how DBT is a, a little bit different than other therapies. Mm -hmm. But did I miss anything from the basic structure nope. or say anything in a confusing too fast way? I don't think so. Is uh, my... Uh comprehension or understanding of dbt is more rudimentary than yours for sure because i haven't gotten that good in-depth training but it sounded good to me okay well <laughs> if any dbt specialists are out there and i got anything wrong let me know and i will correct the record so the in the skills training which is delivered through the group treatment so often the individual group or at least once a week although this varies um and then reinforced by the therapist both in the moment for uh, skills coaching and also in the therapy session there are four modules mindfulness distress tolerance interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation they there's a a training workbook that has specific handouts and conversations and stylistic ways to deliver that i won't go into all of that but i will just say what each of these modules what the the point of them are for mindfulness it's a practice of being fully aware and present in this one moment and what what that that is viewed by many as kind of the core of all the skills because some of the symptoms that we talked about with borderline personality disorder in the past can have to do with acting um, impulsively or in self-damaging ways in an attempt to regulate emotions 
And something that can help with that is to, to try to ground oneself in the moment so that they're not, so that you're kind of just focusing on what's going on now and um, thinking it through kind of before acting on what it is. Mindfulness can be a helpful way to clarify emotions and also just to ground oneself. Because another thing that is not uncommon in a lot of disorders, but maybe um, also in borderline personality disorder, is kind of ruminating about a past event and that can uh, amplify certain negative emotions. And so mindfulness can be a way to both be more planful and focus on that moment according to the skills module. So it it's part of that. And then I and I would argue another part of it is that it's about learning to kind of um, participate or throw oneself into activities to add some of the positive aspects and allow yourself to feel positive emotions. Sometimes when people are suffering from mental health problems, they may be doing something fun, but they think, I don't really deserve this, or it's going to be fleeting, and so they're actually not enjoying it, and this allows people to kind of refocus and pay attention and have, like, acquire those positive experiences. So that's one aspect of mindfulness. Did I miss anything about mindfulness? Nope, I don't think so. That was very comprehensive primer. It's fun to do mindfulness because often you open the skills group with different mindfulness mm -hmm. exercises, and there are a lot of different ones out there. I mean, breathing and eating the raisin are some of mm -hmm. the classics, but there are some other ones too that I yeah. that have been helpful. Music ones. Music, uh, I like those. Body scan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's one that, there are a couple that I learned while I was on an internship that were about kind of participating even when you feel self-conscious and those were uncomfortable, but they were good skills practicing. So they'd be things like one was called Laughing Club, where everybody has to laugh really loud as though something was funny. And it's kind of hard to get over the self-consciousness oh, yeah. of laughing about nothing. But you can see where that would bring your awareness to the thoughts and feelings in your head. Oh, yeah. uh, second one is distress tolerance. Briefly, how to tolerate pain in difficult situations, not change it. So one of the things that also can lead to self-damaging behaviors. If someone is feeling very intense emotional pain and they feel like they can't stand it. And if you feel like you can't stand the pain, you can imagine why someone would think about trying to kill themselves or using drugs or having um, kind of unprotected sex or doing something that takes you out of the emotional pain. And what distress tolerance does is to teach you how to tolerate the pain rather than making it worse by adding additional problems. So, for example, if someone's in a lot of emotional pain and they feel like they can't tolerate it and they use substances or they start um, yelling at someone, they could then add new stressors to the situation. So it, that really focuses on the idea that, like, you actually can stand this and, and you're you have the strength to withstand this without acting in a way that, that hurts you. The third module is interpersonal effectiveness, and this is really helpful for the aspect of personal relationships. It helps people to ask for what they want and say no while maintaining self-respect and relationships with others. So this includes assertiveness skills, there's uh, role-playing, and basically learning how to express things in a way that tends to get you your goal. And at least in my, the times that I've done this, like um, when I was a graduate student, 
this was something that the members of the group would say was really helpful. Like they would say, you know, they might threaten suicide or do something else if they're afraid they're going to be abandoned. And they said they did that often because they of how strongly they felt and not knowing a more effective way to get what they wanted, which might be reassurance of some sort or some other kind of thing that doesn't damage their relationship. Or some of them would have a pattern where they weren't being assertive and they would get in relationships where they felt they were being used and that would chip away at their self-esteem. And so it's kind of, they bring in their real world situations, role play with each other and learn these specific skills. The last one's emotion regulation. We talked about kind of tolerating emotions. Emotion regulation is how to change emotions that you want to change. And so again, it's the same idea that what's driving a lot of what we see as a borderline behavior is the desire to change emotions and reduce suffering. And so this is adding skills for a way to do this in a way that's more adaptive and not hurtful. I'll just, I, there are a lot of skills for each of these. So one that I'll mention that seems to have been a favorite of clients and that I personally use, which is you can see how Linehan kind of pulled these from behavior therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and, and acknowledges that, but it's called opposite to emotion action. And it's the idea that you can change your emotions by just acting as if you feel that way. And now it's a little tricky because it's not like you want to deny your emotions or something, but like, for example, um, something that I I remember one client saying is that she had she carpooled with these two other people and she found herself very irritated by them on the hour long ride every single week and so using opposite to emotion action rather than getting in being irritated being prepared for that she would purposely try to engage with them and and act as though she was enjoying herself and she said she actually did enjoy it more it's not like she suddenly thought. They had everything in common, but it was just that she found in doing that, she wasn't just like sitting there stewing about how unpleasant the conversation was and that she actually found more things she liked about them by taking that approach. And so she found that useful. So anyway, I guess other things I think of are, you know, if, I don't know, struggling going to the gym or something and you kind of are like act, you know, tell yourself you're excited getting pumped up and go there and actually enjoy yourself. Mm -hmm. So. That's a simplistic version, but those are the main modules. Yeah. Did I miss anything? Nope. Okay. That's uh, DVT in a nutshell. In a small <laughs> nutshell, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot. A lot of complexities, but hopefully that that helps. A lot of complexities to the disorder, too. So yeah. It's fitting that, that uh, a, a complex treatment is required to overcome some of the difficulties and diverse uh, problems that individuals with borderline personality disorder can face. Yeah, and I, I will say that it's been truly remarkable to see some of the changes that people have made through their persistence and engagement in therapy in general and within dialectical behavior therapy groups. I've seen people who have been through horrendous things through their persistence and their engagement make real gains and and make, you know, what Linehan talks about, which is building a life worth living, mm -hmm. you know. And, and she takes that approach that we don't just focus on stopping suicide just because. We, we make it because you have a life that you don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I it's that's among the clinical work that I've done. That's been some of the most remarkable to me to show how resilient 
people can be and how motivated they are to, to feel better. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I hope that Rebecca and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has that similar experience. I hope so, too. And forgive me, I remember we had talked about this. They didn't directly reference DBT because, of course, that's a, a specific... Uh, term that maybe you shouldn't, you couldn't, can't use. On well, TV. that's what I heard from okay. a friend that it was because of proprietary use, but that they had that in mind and that sure when they were discussing it. So I'm interested to get to season three and see yeah. uh, see that too. Not that I doubt it, but I'm just interested yeah. to kind of see the see it all play out. Well, that would be huge if there's some references to some of the specific skills because even though, like we said, it's more complicated than we talked about, which is why it's such an investment for people. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's really hard. Like if you're uh, suffering from all these things and you're being asked to really invest and do these things, it can be difficult. But I think that, um, you know, if even some of the messages like that you can tolerate pain and there are some skills, mm-hmm. it, it helps because it's like, it's, saying there are you you can get through this and basically we're viewing this as if you acquire these skills it's helpful it's not magical and that's the thing that i like is it's not i don't think linehan ever states this as a promise like you're going to be cured and everything's going to be perfect but it's more like there are options for you to mm-hmm. make your life better and yeah. we have some of these for you while recognizing that it's painful and difficult to yeah. do that and that validation is a key part of dbt even for herself, in the end of that New York Times article, she recognizes that she still has ups and downs of her own. So it is, you're right, it's important to clarify. It's not a cure-all, end-all, fix-everything. Uh, but it will hopefully allow someone to can engage in that investment to make their life better. That's, that's true. And the other thing that she says, which I think is humble, is that she says, you know, she had this kind of transformative, changing experience but she doesn't expect that's how it works for most people. Mm-hmm. She expects that it's it's less of a sudden thing and it's more over time a consistent thing, which I thought was nice that she recognized that too. There are different courses, mm-hmm. you know. She's not trying to say, yeah, it'll be just like what I experienced. Mm-hmm. No. And another thing we should maybe say is that one of the things about borderline personality disorder that can be a misconception is that once someone has it, they always mm-hmm. meet full criteria for it. And that is, I mean, that was even reflected in the last version of the diagnostic manual that it was viewed as kind of a persistent lifelong thing, which is why it was on access to or whatever. But um, there is evidence that people go into remission through treatment and over time. So this isn't a diagnosis that means necessarily it's something people will have all their life. Yeah. It's probably a good spot to wrap it up. I think so. All right. Any closing thoughts, Katie? I think this is probably it for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Yes. Series. Next, we'll be doing Punisher, I think. Am I remembering that right? I know we just talked about it before we started recording, <laughs> so I probably should remember it. Yeah, Punisher. So if you have any Punisher questions, send them. I haven't watched it yet, but that's okay. I'll catch up soon. I saw an article that said it's the most accurate representation of combat-related PTSD media. Wow. I'm not sure if I agree with that or not yet. But I'll be curious to talk about it. Okay. Um, But as for today, uh, we'll just say thanks so much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about Marshall Linhan and DBT. And uh, in the words of Frazier, we'll just wish you good mental health. What about your Pearl of Wisdom, Brian? I don't don't have one. I don't have one for this. I know. I've been neglecting the Pearl of Wisdom. (laughs) The problem is, is I used to be able to freestyle them and just come up with them on the fly. But now I... Like, 
take it a little bit more seriously and I actually want to say something nice. Something profound. And then because of that, what I do is just engage in avoidance and not say anything at all. But people did talk about the Pearl of Wisdom at times. Do you want to... Okay, let's do this. That was a good one. We, the Today's Pearl of Wisdom is a Marshall Linehan quote, and I'm just going to read it as is. Radical acceptance rests on letting go of the illusion of control and a willingness to notice and accept things as they are right now without judgment. We'll close it there. Thanks, Marshall Linehan, <laughs> and thanks to all of our wonderful listeners, and you'll hear from us next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.